Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm DJ Patil, former U.S. Chief Data Scientist, Senior Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, CTO of Devoted Health, and member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and your moderator for the program. This program is also part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We thank our audience for your support of the Commonwealth Club. If you wish to make a donation, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231. Once again, that's DONATE to 415-329-4231. We also want to remind you to submit questions both for me and our guests via the chat room next to your screen. And I'll get to as many possible later in the program. Today, I'm delighted to talk with Arthi Shahani, award-winning journalist for National Public Radio and author of the book, American Dreams, American Nightmares, now in paperback. In today's polarized environment, the immigrant has become an object of distrust, scorn, and even hatred. Yet for many immigrants, including both of us, this identity is a source of profound pride. Uh Immigrants are proud to have crossed borders and built homes, even in places we don't want to. Arthi and I are both immigrants and proud to say we are also Americans. And so Arthi, thank you for being here today with us. I'm so excited to talk about your book. And and for those that don't know, the book was just released in paperback. It's now out and you can get it now. You can order it now. There you go. The paperback. (laughs) The paperback. I I have the hard cover because it's- That's right. But uh, it's a very different art, right? (laughs) It is different art. We're going to have to talk about the choices for the jacket because I know there's a lot of subtlety in the meetings. So I want to get to that. But Arthi, maybe to start this conversation, and and maybe I should show off first, like I, I have my shirt for today- uh, with my flag and made by by immigrants, which is I feel appropriate, especially this time in in our political discourse. But maybe to start, um, I would love to read a passage of your book and have you uh, talk about it. And, oh and so, so, so we're going to try to do something <laughs> different here. We're we're trying to change it up as we do our shelter in place version. You're going to deliver it, right? You're going to deliver. deliver it. I, I have to I have to do my best impersonation. But I, I, I this is something that you don't know which which part I'm going to talk about. Um, so so uh, I'm going to start and let, let's. Uh, I, 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 this is part where you're going to guess what I'm going to bring. Which part I'm going to bring up? Uh-huh. All right, Chore. That. Favorite word of his, crazy girl. I couldn't tell if he was being third world playful or this was serious. He had trace of a smile. Either way, I wasn't in the mood. When I was younger, if an adult told me to jump, I wouldn't even stop to ask how high. I'd just jump as high as I could, hoping to surpass expectations and gain approval. Now that I was getting older, I wanted respect. I ignored him. Chure, did you hear what I said? He repeated himself harsher this time. The trace of smile was gone. They don't need help, I told him. I already checked. Then go stand there and learn how to cook. He was trying to break me in. Back when Ang was in sixth grade, dad ordered her to take cooking lessons from Auntie Shanta. Shanta. 
My big sister didn't get top grades. Dad wanted to make sure she would at least have good marriage prospects. He didn't force me. Ang thought it was because my grades weren't strong. I thought it was because unlike her, I'd put up a fight. Dad didn't like to fight. His little brother did. I said, go to the kitchen, Uncle Rattan repeated himself. No. That single syllable shot out of my mouth and pierced his eardrum. What did you say? I couldn't believe it either. But I wasn't going to take it back. Our eyes locked. I wish they hadn't. I didn't know how to avoid eye contact. We were in front of an audience. Dad was right there. And I had defied my uncle directly, out loud. His manhood was on the line. What did you say, he repeated? I'm going downstairs. I got up to head to the staircase. There was another TV in the basement. I could find a sitcom about a happy family. Uncle Rattan blocked me, standing inches from my face, the vein on his temple pulsing. I smelled the stench of his breath. It always smelled like rotten eggs. No longer speaking, but shouting, the grenade of his temper came straight at me. Go to the kitchen or I'll break your mouth. Lay a finger on me and I'll have you arrested, I said. This is America. That, that portion has always stood out to me powerful on so many dimensions. Hmm. Not only because it's happening right next to the kitchen with so much of our culture happens, especially immigrant households, but also an extended family. Hmm. And it also shows that dichotomy of generational divide. Hmm. The question I have for you, Arthi, when you hear this, you could have written any story. You're, you're, you're famous. You're well-respected. You didn't write the pat yourself on the back immigrant story. You, you wrote a very raw emotional story. It didn't paint everything in the, the best of light. Why? Okay, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Uh, <laughs> I'll get to it. But I mean, like, so why did you choose that passage? Like, what, what did it do for you? When, when you read it? Uh, I mean, it, it struck me as very raw. It, it, it struck me as, 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 as an immigrant, it brought together so many memories of what it means to be an immigrant, that you're in this colossal mix. And, and, and so for me, I could almost picture myself in that. And, and so it, it just, it, it was so vivid. It was so raw. That, that's why I think it stood out to me. So it, remi- it reminded you of things that, that you've seen, maybe. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, DJ, like that's, you know, part of what, what one does when you write, it's, it's helping people to talk about an experience that maybe you're not comfortable talking about. Right. Um, and I think that it's funny, right? Because even how you like introduced what we're doing here tonight I am incredibly proud of my migrant identity. Like it's just, it really strikes me as like the ultimate kind of gaslighting that the thing that I feel like is a, is a really strong attribute is being so like thoroughly crapped on (laughs) all over the world by, you know, by leaders also by newsrooms. I mean, just like, I feel like, like the story of who we are has just been so, contorted. And what worries me is that when you are a community under attack, 
a very natural response that is reinforced all around you is the need to role play being perfect, right? Why should I have permission to be here? I mean, if perfection is the bar to entry, no one enters. But we who try to defend our existence in this country feel like we have to put up a show, you know? And I don't think that's healthy because like the fact is like, I recall DJ and my family's experience, you know, that you just read a scene where my uncle, my dad's kid brother, you know, he was a brute. He was a, he was a bully and he threatened me in a way that, you know what? Lots of see girls are threatened. Um, you know, at home, very run of the mill stuff. It's not extreme. It's very, very, very run of the mill. And I can tell you that when, as my family's journey in this country progressed and, you know, what I write about and here we are, as, as you know, from reading the book is, um, a situation in which my father, as well as his kid brother, this uncle, who's a bully, uh, they get arrested. Um, and the story actually unfolds around that arrest, um, you know, in real life, I basically became like my family, my family lawyer when I was a teenager and I started getting involved in my family's legal problems. And so when I was doing that, I would like go and run around and speak to like, you know, lawyers, public officials, um, you know, elected judge, like I'd reach out. And when you're trying to like, defend your right to exist, you don't share a complicated story about how messy my family is. Now that I am as an adult, no longer fighting to survive, I have the privilege, the ability to just open up and be honest. Because a lot of people right now, a lot of people with us tonight feel like they're fighting for the right to exist. And when you're in that fight, it's really, really hard to say what's actually happening in your life. You have to paint, a, you know, people to me who paint this sort of perfect picture, like the model minority picture, that to me is always a signal that, oh, you're a very insecure person. And I don't mean that as a pot shot. I mean, like there are things about your life you feel very unsettled in. And so you need to sort of portray a superhuman kind of, you know, being. But that passage, and thank you for reading that one. It was interesting to hear the words because, you know, the word that he was calling me is chutty, chutty, stupid girl, foolish girl. And I like, you know, I didn't pick up Hindi or Sindhi, which is what my family spoke. Well, they spoke six languages. I, I end, actually ended up learning Spanish, uh, but like, I'm not, I, I didn't um, pick up the Indian languages, but there are like a few words I totally picked up and like chutty and chukar, like, you know, dumb girl, shut up. Like that, that, that I, I knew, yeah. So can we actually talk about that? You raised such an interesting thing because I, as an immigrant myself, I, I did not, you know, I, when I came to this country, I was, I was very young. I was still a baby. I was effectively raised my entire life here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't speak, I speak more Spanish than I do any other language, like Hindi oh, or any other. Okay. Bueno. And, and the, the thing that it always, I think I, there's always this, this thing, like as, as, as an immigrant, like you, you kind of don't fit because like you go to the, your community and sometimes you go to events and they're like, wait, what do you mean you don't know another language? And part of it was for me was, you know, I was being helped raised by my grandparents 
And mm-hmm. they didn't, like my grandma didn't know English. So she would speak to us in English to become part of the community. Mm. And so there's this, there's this dichotomy of what we paint as like the ideal immigrant or ideal person who's supposed to know these certain, you're supposed to have certain facets or, or check boxes and we don't have them. Uh-huh. How do you, how do you, how, how did you reconcile that as you went through your immigrant story? And I'm sorry, what do you mean check boxes? What, what type of check boxes? So check boxes meaning like we all got straight A's. We all uh, went, you know, we speak this thing. We were culturally, we know we go to, we take the, the classic Indian classes or if you go, if you're, you know, Chinese, uh, of Chinese origin, you you go to you know Chinese uh, Mandarin or Cantonese school right. uh, on the weekends, or you know something of that nature. You know, it's so funny you say this, and like, so I just like let's tear, let's pull it apart a little bit. Um, like, did you get straight A's? <laughs> I, I, I I was lucky if I got an A. Yeah, I mean, like, so here's the thing. I'm not trying to put you on the spot because, like, you know, I think you're really smart, but you didn't get straight A's. You were not no. a straight A student at all. Um, I was, but you weren't. <laughs> and, like, I think that part of the, at least in the U.S., part of the immigrant experience is on the one hand being, like, deeply distrusted, like, who are you? What are you doing here? But then also, like, like it's like the cult of high expectations. And so, you know, like I was talking to a girlfriend of mine who's African-American. She's from Los Angeles, physics PhD from MIT. Okay. Brilliant woman um, is working on this incredibly hard technology to transform carbon into like meatless meat. I mean, like I can't even like, I mean, she does important, complicated stuff. I wonder if having conversation, I'll paraphrase how I remember it, but basically she grew up with people chronically underestimating her, chronically assuming, oh, you're not going to be able to do, or, oh, you must not, even like the being complimented about like, oh, you're so articulate. Like how often do you t- tell like an elder white gentleman, oh, you're so articulate. Like you expect that person to be well-spoken, but for some reason, when it's like a young black girl or, or black girl, like oh, you're surprised. You know, these are points that she was making to me. And I have to say that I was like, it's so funny because I feel like, like if anything, I benefited from being chronically overestimated. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is that you step into classes and the teachers just assume, oh, this is going to be a great student. And you know that the cues when you're young, especially the cues that you get around you, Right they really form your own self-image, right? So if you assume that I'm going to lead and I'm going to do this thing, I kind of assume it too. And if you don't assume that, it's hard for me to believe in myself. It takes a a type of character that's incredibly rare. And so like, I just mentioned that to you because, I mean, I know for a fact, like from where I grew up in Queens, New York, you know, we I grew up in a majority minority community, okay, in the 1980s and 90s in in Queens, New York City. And I can safely say there were a ton of, you know, B and C immigrant students, some of whom were related to me, (laughs) but we don't talk about that like that in our society, you know? What, why? Like, what what, what do you think holds us back? Is it that we're afraid to show who we really are? Are we afraid to protect, to to shatter the veneer of... Uh The, the, um, the, the, the ideal, the, uh, the, the, 
the Amar Bose, kind of like the, the founder mm -hmm. of, of, of the headphones that a lot of people wear, kind of mm -hmm. ideal, like just, you know, the rocket ship personality? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have a couple of, of guesses. I'm kind of curious what, if you agree with that characterization, and maybe you don't, but why do you think? Well, I, I mean, for me, I, I, I grew up in the, the mountains of Utah. And, and, you know, I was diversity. <laughs> so, so there wasn't anybody else. And, and, you got an Indian friend? Yeah, they were like, hey, you, you're the diversity kid. And, and so, you know, like, I, I remember how often it was growing up. I moved here in fifth grade to the San Francisco Bay Area. And even when I moved here and it was not the Silicon Valley that people think of as still orchards, you know, the time and time again, people would say, wow, you, you speak English so well. Mm -hmm. And just sort of, and I remember just sort of thinking like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And, and, and you know, sort of, I wonder, and, and then there's the ideal of, of you realizing that people, you, you hear about some story that's written up as an expose and it says, wow, this is, here's the amazing person, but they don't talk about the rawness and the, the other portions of it, the underbelly of being an immigrant, if you will, the what I think actually is our superpowers is, is a struggle. Right. You know, I think that it's like my take on sort of why we have the stereotype that we do. Um, I mean, like, there, the thing is there, like in every stereotype, there are these things that you can point to as the elements of truth that then snowball. It's a bigger, bigger thing. It's like, you know, if you read Tolstoy at all, like Tolstoy was a master of the, the national stereotype. Like, I don't think that Tolstoy, by the way, could ever survive Twitter. Like, I think that he would be like killed in a heartbeat as a troll <laughs> just for the way that he would talk about entire slots of people. Uh, it's a good thing he was writing when he was. Um, but, you know, I think that um, what is possible when you have parents who are driven and risk-taking and have a bit of luck and land into a place, how quickly you can leap when you live in a society that doesn't have like the hierarchies of the European, you know, sort of system of royalty and life. like when you like America was that place that people would come to. And to some extent, the game was rigged, um, clear, clear racism institutionalized, but to some extent, certain people, um, could kind of leap into things in ways that they hadn't experienced back home. So, you know, like back home, you read these stories in Ellis Island even um, of, you know, like, oh, the, you know, the illiterate um, migrant from Germany, and they didn't have to really pass literacy tests. They just came on in, you know, was able to then, you know, raise a child who went on to be a rich landowner. And it's like that kind of thing that wasn't possible back home in part has been possible here because you're not so defined by your family class status rank as you would have been elsewhere. I mean, all these things are relative, but relative to other countries, the U.S. is unstructured in that way. And so I think that we then have these stories of heroes, but then our storytelling sucks. And like, what I mean by that is like, and you know, I don't know, DJ, like you have been here and like, I think of you as like Silicon Valley guy. Like to me, you're one of like my go-to guys when I'm trying to understand this place or, you know, like, like even just in the last week, I've called you to, to sort through like thinking around a policy issue, whatnot. Like, do you see people 
painting portraits of themselves, kind of like these lionized, self-made. And then you know that they had this extensive support network all around them that made the achievement possible, but it's just erased from the story. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it strikes me, you know, the thing that was going on through my head is it's actually the portion of storytelling that is so critical. I mean, what I took away from your book, which is fascinating, is you had a father who was displaced because of war. Mm-hmm. You know, he landed in Morocco. He spoke an incredible number of languages, six languages, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. He's, he figures out how to hustle. Like this quintessential thing that people laud in Silicon Valley, the hustle. He, he, was, mm-hmm. he was hustling. I mean, he only knows how to work. He works, he works, he works. Ends up in a tough situation because of, 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 of parents and structural of the family. And then, you know, comes to the U.S. and you kind of let, you're able to let go of it, but gets trapped by the system that's here in the U.S. that if you take a misstep, you might get trapped. Mm -hmm. Yet that laid the groundwork for you. Mm -hmm. And you got to, you got to be in a position that you would not, maybe not get afforded to in, in another country like Morocco or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about those things of like, how do we let go of the chains of the past to move forward? Right. Well, that, even like if you sort of drill into that, and I appreciate how you set it up, it's like, you know, I, I write about this in the book and um, some of you have read it. Some of you maybe will read it, but I write about my father getting arrested and he was running a store, a store, a wholesale electronic store in Manhattan. That was the culmination of his dreams. I mean, like my dad was one of those guys, like, total workaholic, you know, wore Velcro sneakers, polyester pants, uh, you know, did not live with any extravagance, basically wanted to feed his family, got caught in a war on drugs investigation. That was, I learned many years later, in some ways, just a failed investigation looking for somebody um, to to convict. Anyway, he takes a a guilty plea of eight months and it spirals into a 14-year legal battle because of how the justice system does and doesn't work. And I actually want to talk to you when I, when I ask you some questions, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because you've brought your data science into issues of the justice system. But something that really struck me, DJ, and I don't know if people, you've, if you've had this experience in this country, is at key moments when you feel like you don't belong here, if you're lucky, you meet people all around you who are maybe, they've been here an extra generation or two or three And they tell you, you do, you know, like I really think about how, so my father, even though he had a green card, uh, was being, um, he was given deportation proceedings as a a surprise second punishment in, in, in what he was undergoing. And I remember like the moment I learned that my father could face exile from the U.S. I remember I felt completely indignant and outraged because at age 19, I was 19 years old. I was like, what are you talking about? This is our country. Like my name's Arthi, but I was Artie at the time, right? Like this is where we belong. What, like, how could you make us leave? And I got to tell you, DJ, like that kind of indignation, would I as a migrant child have felt that in Saudi Arabia or Dubai? No, because even if the laws in the U.S. 
have for decades now failed to even create lines for us to stand on. You know, people say, go stand in line. Like, what line? There's no line. Even if there are not lines to stand on, the culture of this country is actually routinely in different places telling you, no, you're of here, you belong here. So like, I know that that outrage I felt as ni- at 19, that kind of fueled me, and you read about it in this book, that fueled me to really fight hard for my family. That outrage is such a product, not just of like my, my karma, my energy, my being, it's a product of the culture, right? It's kind of like, and this is like, like the last night I was watching the president, the vice presidential debates. And I, there's like this thing that, that certain candidates do that triggers me. Um, and so like Mike Pence did it last night. He, he suggested that basically if you're criticizing America for having institutional racism, it means you don't love this country, right? That like, oh, if you say that there's like systemic racism in law enforcement, it means you hate police. And it's like, no, like the whole, the whole like proposition of America is that there's this notion of equality that had never been written before we wrote it. There's this notion of equality. There's the fact of being incredibly far in reality from that notion. And it's like a slog to get there. That's like progress. And so you can't love this country without criticizing it. And the culture knows that, you know, we are a culture that is perfectly fine with critiquing what is broken here. That's, that's the culture of this place where it had been up until more recently. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of, I think a key element for my migrant experience is on the one hand, being exoticized in certain places, but on the other hand, getting so many cultural cues that that's kind of the rite of passage for this place, but you don't have to let go, it's yours. It's so it's so fascinating because what you know I I, I just recall a story on early on when I was at the White House and I was skateboarding home one night uh, as, as well. <laughs> and and at what um, age? At what age? <laughs> in, in my my mid forties. Uh, but it's the fastest way home. Uh, and, and, you know, two, two, two guys were in a truck next to me and they pull up and they say, go back to where you're, you come from. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a moment, I was like, California? Like, <laughs> I'm on a skateboard, dude. Uh, like, mm-hmm. and, and then it sort of dawned on me. I was like, oh, they, they don't see me as part of this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I am, I am, I am coming home from the White House, getting told to go back home, mm-hmm. and and this notion that you could get kicked out of the country mm-hmm. or sent to a place, exiled, when you don't know any other place, mm-hmm. is 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 so, uh, it's outrageous to me. Is the word mm-hmm. that comes to mind? It's outrageous that is that is even on the table. Because that would not be on the table for anybody who would be traditionally like Anglo or here as a third, fifth generation kind of person. I'm thinking a couple of things like one, I mean, I write about this, like my memoir, it's, it's the first American memoir on the modernist deportation system. It's It's a strange kind of first to claim, I realize, uh, but someone had pointed this out to me, you know, like right now in the news, we hear so much about um, ICE deportation, um, enforcement, this kind of thing. And the fact is like DJ, in the 80s and 90s, this was not at all 
a big piece of the American political landscape, pop culture. It didn't show up in shows and sitcoms like it does now. Uh, ICE itself was only created in 2003. And I think that, you know, people, what's little known is the history of how the drug wars led to a set of immigration enforcement laws and practices that had never previously existed in American history. And so the fact that now in immigrant communities, like everyone pretty much knows somebody who's been picked up and kicked out, the fact that it's such a commonly known experience, that wouldn't have been true in the 90s because they simply, they weren't up to the expulsion of hundreds of thousands a year, and now they are. So, so there's actually a shift that's happened over our lifetime that like many shifts, you don't know what's happened. So it's hard to see how it's kind of like when a neighbor, this is a, just bear with me in this analogy, like when a neighborhood gentrifies, you don't really know it's happening um, after a period of time. Like, you know, if you sort of go to New York Lower East Side right now, you're not going to really know what it was like in the 1980s. There's going to be only a vague sense of memory about how it changed. And then you're just going to keep living your life. And so I think that in our country, our nation of immigrants, we've done a bit of that. So we've actually created like a mass deportation machinery that's parallel to the mass incarceration machinery. We're thankfully now questioning mass incarceration in some very overdue ways, but the deportation bit has lagged behind like at a policy level conversation. But like, I'd also say, DJ, like your experience on the skateboard with those guys, like, you know, David Chang, uh, the chef who has the the Netflix show, Ugly Delicious, like it's totally bingeable. Um, like I, I watch it and I can literally feel myself fattening from carbs just watching it. Okay. It's like, it's that kind of show. Highly recommend. Um, oh, one more joke on this front. So I'm like, they don't call it the COVID-19 for nothing. The 19, you know, <laughs> so, it's pretty good, huh? Pretty anyway, good. Pretty good. Yeah. True. Back, <laughs> back to my point. Um, David Chang and Ugly Delicious, he, you know, he always goes on these kind of like soliloquies, points, rants about the othering of the migrant, uh, or excuse me, the, the American of color. I just got confused myself. And he made this point. We call them Chinese restaurants, right? Chinese fast food restaurants. There's more Chinese restaurants in the U.S. than there are McDonald's, KFC, and Burger King combined, Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're not run all by first-generation Chinese people. <laughs> it's like these are a long-standing American institution where the menu bears basically no resemblance to anything you would see in China, but we still call it Chinese. And there is, in our language in this country, a wedding of the American identity with whiteness. That's That's in the language. It's in the proof of... All of us are hyphenated, but if you're German-American or Italian-American or Irish-American, you're not. You lose that hyphen pretty much immediately within a generation, whereas we could be, we're not, but we could be fifth, sixth, seventh generation, and you'd still be that hyphen, right? And so I think that unfortunately, and I'm sorry that happened with you, but it's like, go back to where you came from. I mean, your parents could have built the railroads and you'd still get that. Mm -hmm. 
Right. You know, a question came in here about our position on Black, Black Lives Matter. And, and I think it's an interesting one to talk about, especially, you know, if we look at drug laws and everything that's kind of tied together in this moment that is manifested right now. Uh, what's your position on, on Black Lives Matter? Uh, the question is actually to both of us, but why don't, why don't you start? I'll start. And position on it, I mean, it's a, it's a movement, right? Um, and so I have observations about how the movement has grown. Um, I believe it's a really important movement to accelerate, I'd say, actually many conversations in this country. My experience of learning the U.S. and becoming American is actually largely through the mentorship of African-Americans who were neighbors, teachers, friends. Um, and, I, you know, in the U.S., it's, it's, an, it's an inescapable fact that for generations, I mean, for more time than not, second-class citizenship being inscribed into the law. And then obviously, you know, there, there's issues of generational, like just how there's generational wealth, there's generational disparity that continues. And this is all like documented and proven. So I feel like the need to say Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's tragic that it needs to be said. It does need to be said. I mean, we see it in civilian executions of people. And what frustrates me about how I, you know, cause I've read quite a bit about the people who've helped to build it. And by the way, Black Lives Matter's founders, the, the three women who are credited with creating that hashtag and building the movement, immigrant, right? Uh, one is from Nigeria, I recall. Um, and she, I, I read an interview of hers recently and she had made this point, a Nigerian immigrant, right? Uh, grew up in Arizona. Um, she had made this point that in this interview, that she loves this country. And again, and this is the point I was making earlier, to criticize America is not to hate it, it's to want it to improve. And so I take a lot of inspiration from the Black Lives Matter movement because I think what it does is it signals to all of us this incredible experiment in multi-ethnic democracy. And listen, America is an experiment. Like this is the part where we can't kid ourselves. Like you're either with it and you're helping the experiment or it falls apart. I mean, that's it's the nature of this young country. But this is credible experiment. It's really hard to pull off. And if you're not comfortable troubleshooting your problems, I mean, it's like I do business reporting, you know, that like with companies that that arrive at a key juncture, right? Like, I'll give you the example. This is so like not the answer to a Black Lives Matter question, but I'll just give it. Mm -hmm. Like, I recall when Satya Nadella came into Microsoft and took it over as CEO, okay? Microsoft was flailing. People had criticized it as basically, you've missed the smartphone revolution, you've missed the cloud. Like, what are you guys gonna do? Like, hand me some floppy disks? Like, there was a lot of tongue-in-cheek criticism of the company. And he came in and he didn't like pretend it wasn't true. He came in with a mantra, like mobile first, cloud first, let's do this. And he talked about the problems. And so I think that, for those of us, and like, I would just assume that some of the folks who've joined us tonight feel uncomfortable talking about race and racism. I would just assume it. it has so much to do with our own acculturation, the cues we get from our loved ones, life experience. Like, I just think that we have to remember naming a problem is not what makes it 
big and worse. It's a step to solving it, right? What do you think, DJ? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I lost you for five seconds in our Zoom oh, no. world. Okay. No, I was just saying that naming the problem doesn't make it worse. It's, it's a step towards solving it, particularly when you can name it and keep your love and affection for the project. You know, like I can tell you, and I wrote this in my book, you know, I believe the legal system in the U.S. punished a fundamentally good man, destroyed his livelihood. And then when I went back to write my book, I interviewed people, including the judge who oversaw the entire case, who in his own, from his vantage point, he agreed and gave me an explanation as to why he thought it happened. Like, I believe my father's life was unfairly, his livelihood destroyed. I also believe this is a country where I've had immense opportunity. So isn't it okay for me to hold the both together? Can't I say institutional racism is real? I've seen how it works. And I love America and it's given me opportunity. Like the both can be true at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's also, it strikes me, you know, like a, a, a story I tell people is, is, uh, you know, when I got to, when I, I had the opportunity at the White House to work on civil rights issues, especially at the interface of technology, because many times we think technology is going to just be this amazing solution that's going to fix things. Body cameras will just fix things. Mm-hmm. Yet here we are after body camera footage, after mm. you know, death, after death of, 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 of um, black people, from Breonna Taylor to, to Michael Brown, to, you know, all the names that, that are there. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't solve the problem. We still mm-hmm. have it, the issues. And, and one of the things that I, I took away with this, I remember talking to an auntie at a, at a party mm-hmm. uh, and she said, well, this is just, you know, they bring it on themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just such this, this moment where I thought, okay, how do I react to this? And before you even say that, just what did she mean by that? We, we know, but just say it, spell it out. It is fundamentally, it's a statement of both racism and ignorance mm-hmm. simultaneously. It is not appreciating what the systemic racism that has led to a moment of a particular population not mm-hmm. having opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, education, uh, police um, being heavily invested in, in, a, in a system of oppression. Mm-hmm and all the things that come along with it. Uh, and, and then also thinking that, well, they're there for a reason because they can't get themselves out. Like if they just work harder, mm-hmm. the solution will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the data doesn't support that at all. You don't, you don't need to be, have machine learning and be a whiz at anything to know. Like the, 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 the opportunities are fundamentally uneven. Mm-hmm. And there's this part of a reckoning, which I think is fascinating in immigrant cultures, especially as, as first generation, there's a tension that happens for people who are immigrants mm-hmm. that where, you know, we're confronting a system, people come with their baggage, you know, some of that is Hindu Muslim violence in India, mm-hmm. some of it is, you know, other dichotomies in, in other, uh, uh, other locations, some of it is, you don't want castes to mix, uh, or other things. Mm-hmm. And, you have a generation that's kind of plowing forward and trying to let go of that baggage, but sometimes it's, they're pulled back. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe the question I have for you on, on this is, is, you know, you've gone around the country talking to people 
in, in all different walks. You've, you've heard from people more than anybody else that I know of about immigrants. Uh -huh. What are you hearing across the country? Well, I mean, I do think that I would caveat it with COVID has made across the country be more like a lot of Zoom dates, right? <laughs> um, I mean, there are a couple of things that I think are really strong points. I think people are tired of role-playing perfection. I think it's existentially exhausting and impossible for us as humans. Um, I would not be surprised if in the next two to five years, you see an explosion of first-generation migrants, American stories that are nuanced, that are not screeds fighting for policy positions, but just stories about what it feels like. Um, because I think that that, I think that that pressure cooker has been heating up and heating up and heating up, you know, and I would point out, for example, DJ, when my family came here, we overstayed visas and were undocumented for a handful of years. Then we got our papers. Um, and the process, it was a sibling petition, chain migration, they call it. That process, it took us like three years once the, the petition went in. Today, that same petition, it's like a 22, 24-year wait. And that is to say more and more people who come here are basically living in uncertainty. And so I think that the need to express and unleash how hard that is. Um, because, you know, keep in mind, DJ, some of the, your parents' generation who came here in the 60s and 70s, they were kind of a historic anomaly, right? Particularly the migration from India I'm talking about, because they benefited from statewide programs in India to promote education. And then they benefited from the civil rights movements in the United States that basically gave them visas to come here. So they were riding progressive waves in India and the U.S., into a privileged existence. That's a historical anomaly. It can't happen today because there aren't those kinds of opportunities for new, new waves. But I am noticing, and I'm just like forecasting for you, there's gonna be an explosion of these kinds of stories. And then the other thing is like, obviously, you know, we come from countries where caste and inequality, it's not just like, oh, those are problems. It's more like, we come from countries where people don't, it's not talked about as problems. It's kind of the divisions are more accepted actually back home than they are here. And so it's disorienting to come into a country where people are talking about equality. Equality doesn't really exist. And it's like, what I can see is like, I can recall this one woman, Chinese American. Um, and she basically felt like, she doesn't know what to say to her parents, but also it's because she doesn't know what to think herself because she feels like she's worked so hard, right? And if you, you don't want to believe that the, the game is rigged or the system is flawed when you've bet on it, right? Like it's like literally when you're first generation, you've bet on this being a good place. So you don't want to hear the stories that it's not. It runs counter to your bet. Right. So there's like a structural issue in that. So I know I feel like we're we're really grappling with it. But the, like younger folks, I think that it's kind of like it's it's a generational thing. Right. Like the fact is that I'm seeing like on Instagram, even like all these desi IG accounts that are they've totally been influenced 
by the Black Lives Matter movement, by the Me Too movement, the feminist movement, really bringing in these, like, I think, very American conversations back into the, the sort of back home culture. That's what I see happening. What do you see happening? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, the first time I served in public service, which mm-hmm. was, was um, just after 9-11, you have the Twin Towers behind you. And, and, and mm-hmm. you know, for those yeah, that are also in the book, there's a fascinating story mm-hmm. of how 9-11 really was this, this seminal moment for, for you. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that struck me is that first time I was in public service, uh, I saw one Indian in my entire time in, in, in um, mm-hmm. public service. And it was a woman who was in the Coast Guard and she was really far away. And so I never even got to say hi. I also mm-hmm. only really met two powerful people uh, who were Black in, in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. was uh, uh, Colin Powell and the other was Condoleezza Rice. Mm-hmm. No one else. Mm-hmm. When I came into the Obama administration, it was I had a complete difference. Mm-hmm. There were so many people of all different eth- ethnic backgrounds and, and, and stories that came with it that, that were in roles. And now I look in at least in the campaign, really in the Biden side, how many immigrants are, uh, are there, how much, how much diversity there is. It really looks like the country, including the vice president's uh, vice president candidate, uh, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of that is, is a shift and, and, you know, there's so many good questions that, that, that have come in. One that I want to ask you about is, especially since there's, uh, there's a lot of parents who are here with us today. And, you know, there's a classic question of your parents, where they were kind of the first, first on the shore immigrant. Mm-hmm. They laid the groundwork for us. Then mm-hmm. as kids come in, our kids come in to the situation, how do we make sure that they have that, for lack of a better term, that immigrant hustle, or is that even necessary? Write a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, like actually this ties back to what you'd asked me and then I want to flip it because I have a few questions for you and I can't see what's coming in, but I do have some questions for you. Um, like something that's come up a lot in these book talks is just people saying like, you know, I've gotten this multiple times. Like, Arthi, I'm a little, I'm a little envious that you wrote down your family story because now future generations of your family will know your story. And I don't know anything about my grandparents, really. I asked my dad after reading your book, and my dad doesn't really know anything about his dad and why his dad came here, meaning like the actual backstories. And this is like, you know, it's hard to talk about the things that are traumatic, right? It's kind of like the, it's in the design of trauma that the very experiences from which you can learn a lot. I mean, that if you have the courage to dig into you will learn so much about yourself, your society, relationships. The nature of trauma is a very rich place, but it's very hard to look at. And so by and large, you know, like our parents, many of them, I mean, they don't talk about the experiences that they've had that actually prompted them to take the risk of crossing the ocean. They don't, they don't describe what was happening or what it was like when actually here. And so I do feel like it will be lost if you don't teach it, you know, like you want a practical, like, this is not like a self-help session, but like, like a practical, like, you know, COVID-19 date night idea for the family. Like 
interview each other, go ahead and talk to each other and ask just these details that otherwise will get lost. Do you have another question or can I ask you one? Yeah, let me ask a couple more real quick. I know we have only 10 minutes, but because there's so many, so many good questions. Okay, because I, um, I have. Right. I, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you weave a couple of these together. So I'm going to kind of bundle them and okay. and see okay. how it is. One one question that's come up is how do you how important is humor in dealing with adversity? Uh, the other one is is there's a few here about the the what gives you hope about America, uh, and given the challenges and the rhetoric that we're seeing out there in the political landscape, and another one is uh, about how do you believe that uh, how can your positive story be used to provide better equity for immigrants from other countries that don't have the same assumptions or beliefs? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So three very different ones, but. Okay. You might um, have to repeat the last one, but I, I want to, I want to tackle the first two before I forget sure. them. Um, yeah, go for it. Capacity. <laughs> um, humor. Oh my God. Like if you've been through bad stuff, like you need to know how to laugh. You know, like there's just no other way through it. And like, one of the things I didn't expect in writing here we are. Um, so, I mean, like, did you laugh when you read the book? Like, yeah, I, I, I did. There was, there was a number of times where it, 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 it very much so. Like, I just, I, like, I'll just kind of share things I didn't expect to remember, but like ended up being like a part of this story that I'm codifying for my country and future generations. Like, okay, things were seriously blowing up all around us. I mean, like, just to give you a high level of sense, there were two different legal cases, as well as a kidnapping, as well as a financial crisis. Like, a lot was unraveling in my family's life. It was really, really, really not good. And I was trying to, like, tackle it all. I actually, I stopped going to college for a year so I could just focus on, like, becoming my family lawyer, kind of, that kind of thing. And I remember like being really like unhappy and anxious and like really, really wound up, you know, 19, 20 years old, insane amounts of energy, not sure what to do with it. And my brother's like, yo, let's work out. And he started taking me to the gym and he basically, he had me bench pressing and squatting. And like, he basically turned me into his little brother. Like I just physically changed like in two months, like I just changed. And I remember the scene that I, I talked about in the book is like one day we go to the gym. Like we basically, we would do like two hours a day, six days a week. That was just like our thing. And I remember we went to the gym and he had me like benching. I can't remember if it was 95 pounds or 115 pounds, but I benched like some good amount of weight, uh, like basically my body weight at the time. And he had one of his friends from Queens uh, join us at the gym and the guy couldn't bench as much as me. And I like loved writing this scene where, oh, how is Arthi coping with early or childhood trauma? She's exercising at the gym with her brother. But then I'm also like showing off that I can bench more than my brother's friend. Like, you know, whatever, like life is goofy. Um, There's another time where my sister, for reasons I'm not going to explain, my brother, sister, and I have to go to England to try to resolve a very bad situation. And my sister goes missing during that trip for the evening. We have no idea where she is. We feel, we, we're afraid she's been abducted, that something horrible has happened. And then she eventually, like, well past midnight, wanders into the motel room that we're sharing. She's just drunk. 
And she was so tired of all the serious things we were dealing with. She found some foreign exchange students at a pub and just decided to get wasted with them. And so like, I'm just saying like, life is funny. It's full of respite in between like the intensity. Um, So yeah, no, humor is really important. I hope that you laugh a lot. You know, there's a lot to laugh about. Uh, the question after that, I'm sorry, I went too long about that. Cause... No, no, that's totally okay. The The other one was um, uh, humor. And then, uh, you know, well, th- let's talk about the positive story for, there's immigrants that don't always come with a historical, like Indians and those from, from Chinese ancestry, we come from the thing of like, oh, they must be smart. There's a baggage that is that, that, as you point out, is really actually an accelerant for those that come from Africa or uh, um, uh, Latin America, South America, Central America. There is a baggage of uh, a cultural racist tribe that says they're lazy or other things. Just going to be chronically underestimated because that's sort of where you fit into the American caste system, so to speak. Right, right, and and so how do you think about? Um, what can your story be, what what do you how can your positive story be used to to help that community? What do you what do you have for that community? You know what I what I think, and this is like, you know, DJ, you and I were talking about this before having this event, I believe, just about like the immigrant identity. It's funny because I don't know how you feel about it. For me, it's one of my very strongest. And I can tell you, no matter what country you're from, when I meet you and I know you're first generation, we click. I don't, you could be a Trump supporter. We still click. It's just a shared understanding about crossing worlds, being told you don't belong, you know, finding your way in and then like your nutty families and our families are nutty in similar ways. Right. So like that said, and so like, you know, you ask, how can my book help? I mean, like, I would pretty much assume if, if you, if your family, if you have been through the experience of making this country your home, you're just going to relate to it. You're just, you'll relate to it. And I read to understand myself better, you know, like all books are self-help books ultimately, you know, that's just how that, that's why you read. Um, And so I would think that many people will see themselves more clearly just from a sort of refracted mirror, but on this issue of where we fit in the hierarchy. There's actually another book I'm reading right now. It's by this woman, Isabel Wilkerson, and it's called Cast. And what she does in this book, Cast, is basically rereads America's racial structure by comparing it to India and Germany. Because, you know, we in the US, we have a habit of part of the exceptionalism of of who we are is we don't use terms for ourselves that we use for others. So like regime, we use the term regime to describe all sorts of other countries. We don't use it for ourselves, even when we're currently questioning whether we're going to have a free and fair election. Okay. Wilkerson in this book cast basically makes these comparisons to explain what the hierarchy in the U S caste system is. And I just think that it's such a great read because she talks about part of caste is that it's it's unspoken. So what we were discussing about the way some are overestimated, the same way that some are chronically underestimated, it fits in the complex of caste that you see here as well as in other countries. Um, something that shocked me in reading her book as a historical detail is when Hitler's regime in Germany 
was trying to figure out how to legally architect the program they wanted to put in place for the Jewish population, they actually looked to America's racial architecture, the racism inscribed into our laws, and basically took that as the most innovative model to try to apply in their own home context. And so it's just, you know, I think that particularly if you're interested in the culture wars that are happening right now, anything that you can read that helps us push back an exceptionalist narrative and understand us in a sort of more global light, I think is really great. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple minutes left. And and the question that I I know it's kind of flown by, always does. (laughs) When am I going to interview you, man? (laughs) Well, we have to come back to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, uh, With this couple minutes left, you know, your childhood policy. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) But, 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 uh, the part of, you know, we're living in this very emotional, challenging time where mm-hmm. many of us are stuck at home. There's mm-hmm. a number of us that are essential workers. Those that are with essential workers, thank you for what you do. There's many people who do essential work, but you're not classified as essential workers. You're farm workers, but you should be essential workers. And the question I have for you is, what gives you hope? What gives you inspiration? You know, DJ, I didn't say this to you before. You give me hope. You really do. And I want to explain why. This is now my shout out to to my new brother from another. Um, When I first moved to Silicon Valley and I became NPR's correspondent covering tech, which was a job that I held up until last year, I found this place to be incredibly culturally closed and uninviting. So a lot of the mainstream coverage of Silicon Valley depicted the white programmer, the awkward, geeky white programmer. You wouldn't know from media depictions how incredibly diverse this place is, but also, again, stratified. You know, like people break up by nationality, people break up by class. And I find a real lack of curiosity. It's like in New York City, people live so compact and close to each other. I don't know if that physical proximity makes you somehow more curious and open to difference. But I've found among very intelligent people, a real lack of curiosity. You and I come from different parts of the Indian American experience, okay? My roots are kind of the messier, working class, low-end globalization of the 80s and 90s. Your roots are, I think, the sort of more lauded, um, educated globalization of this or migration of the 60s and 70s. I find that a lot of, frankly, Indian Americans who grew up with more sort of um, upper sort of echelon families are not particularly interested in the stories of the people who ran motels, gas stations, and small shops. And how much you have the fact that you like voraciously read my book and then asked me, how can we help share it in this community? I was like, wow, really? That's what DJ wants to do? And so I feel to me like you're just this example of a guy who's, you know, you, a lot of people believe in you. You have, I believe, we both know a certain kind of privilege as do I, we have different kinds of megaphones And you think about how you can use it to help people keep learning and growing and evolving. So 
that gives me hope. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. That, that means a lot. You know, it, it strikes me, it gets, we just have a minute left, and I want to make sure to, to give you a chance to, to have the last word. Is It, it is um, the thing, because I get asked all this time, what gives me hope in this time? And, and it, it strikes me, as there's a conversation that you and I have had, Arthi, which is, you know, what was it like being at the White House? And I remember, like, every kid gets to go there for a field trip. I, I didn't get to go on my, my school field trip because my grades were so bad that I wasn't allowed to go to the field trip because they said, you're not qualified to go to D.C. So I had to go become a public servant to go to D.C. Uh, and I remember thinking about what an honor it is to be on this side of the fence when normally the rest of us are on the outside and, and the importance that the next generation sees the White House as their house, mm. not the people's house that is in the textbook. It's everybody else's except their house. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not just an immigrant thing. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an aspect for every American. Right. And, and I see people marching in the streets for Black Lives Matter. I see people standing up for their free speech. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a political statement of left or right. It's a statement of exercising your, your fundamental constitutional ability, the ability to be engaged. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that that is a real beauty and the power. And as you said, it, it is an experiment, and an all experiment only works if we participate. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a central tenet of why this is so important. Mm-hmm. And so maybe as as you, as you kind of carry us on out here, mm-hmm. I would love for you to 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 just share with us, you know, as as we as we're heading through these times, how do you stay grounded? And you got to do it in 60 seconds. That, now that's, that's my chance to be my NPR version. <laughs> uh, uh, I garden. I just started gardening. I'm a terrible gardener. I've killed two uh, fledgling trees in my backyard, um, but I have absolutely been on the ground doing that. Uh, and I write. I mean, I write to understand the world. I'm, you know, when you, it's how I metabolize reality. Yeah. And you, DJ? You know, the, the thing that it gives me the most grounding is talking to people who are doing the real work, people who are mm-hmm. getting out there, people like you who are talking across the country, hearing the stories, hearing the voices of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the other honest thing is, I, because we come from both from privilege, is talking to the next generation mm-hmm. and, and getting to share with that yeah. next generation. And maybe it's a function of being older or, 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 or having kids. Is, Absolutely. Yeah, you just hear the inspiration and and uh, in their voice and and or the the passion, yeah. and, and I just it, it, I just want to see it unleashed into the system. Yeah, they're unleashing it. Yeah, I just if we can sort of share our our victories and mistakes so they can learn faster. It's like it's shrinking the that's path right. to progress. You know the the curve. That's, yeah. that's very well said. I, I want them to 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 move faster than us. Move yeah. easier. Yeah, well, the problems are bigger. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Arthi, uh, our, our time has flown by. Uh, our thanks again to Arthi Shahani, award-winning journalist for National Public Radio and author of the book, American Dreams, American Nightmares, not only in hardcover, but also now in paperback. Gorgeous, Daisy paperback. That's right. Daisy paperback. Please, please, I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, You can get the get her book at the link that was provided here. uh, Your local bookstore online can follow her on 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 Twitter. Follow me on Twitter as well, and we'll make sure the links are out there. 
This program has been a part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. And we also want to thank you, our listening audience. This wouldn't happen without you, and the Commonwealth Club is that forum that hopes to be here for you. And so if you're willing to, please consider donating to support the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to watch more programs to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm DJ Patil. This concludes our program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.